Chick. You are listening to the Quarter to Three Games Podcast, where we talk to the people who make the forum what it is, about the games that matter to them. Today, we have here a really boring guy who probably isn't going to have a lot to say. Uh, you know him as, actually, we will find out in a minute what you know him as, because there's been some debate as to how the heck you're supposed to say his forum name. But uh, his real name is Adam Britton. Adam, thank you for hanging out. Now, hey, Tom, how are you doing? Uh, you, you just said good day. That, that was a joke, wasn't it? Australians it don't was. say good day. Right, right. Well, they do, but here in the Northern Territory, we say, how's it going? All right. So, uh, good day back to you. Uh, now, so, so settle this for us. Your, your forum name is K-R-A-Y-Z, Croc. Why on earth is it that, and how do you pronounce it? Well, um, it is actually pronounced Crazy Croc. And the reason why I spelled it like that was, I don't know. Actually, no, no, I lost it. it <laughs> I was just looking for a unique uh, forum handle at the time. Well, this was before quarter to three. And people have often regarded me as being completely nuts working on crocodiles. Uh, so that's where the crazy came from. And I, I just wanted something that no one else would have. And I realized, of course, that if you reverse the Z and the Y, see I said Z there. Exactly. If you reverse the Z and the Y and you pronounce it the way that Americans would, it has a Z, then it's still crazy croc. So there you go. All right. and I have endless amounts of fun watching people misspell it all the time on the forum. <laughs> Now, so also it's worth pointing out, I think we have a few other crocodile-themed names on the forum, but you, of course, have a unique claim to it, uh, and I know some folks will want to hear about this, so I'll just say that I actually heard you speak here in Los Angeles at the, uh, it was like the Los Angeles Herpetological Society meeting, and to people listening, that's going to sound like a support group for people with a venereal disease. That's not what that is. Uh, the best way to think of it is uh, like Lizard Club, I, I think. Um, there were some very strange people there, but uh, no, it was, it was definitely all about, about lizards and snakes and, and frogs and toads, Herp, herptophiles, if you, if you want to use that term, which is probably not a good term to use, actually. People, well, I, who, people who like and who study and who keep reptiles and amphibians. There you go. How's that? Right, and you got up and you did this great presentation on, I was actually hoping it was going to be on why you were here, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But instead, it was just a general, hey, here is what is cool about crocodiles talk, I thought. And listening to this talk, Adam, I was struck by two things that I want to bring up. Um, the first thing I was struck by is that you basically are a scientist. Is that yes. correct? That's correct, yeah. Now, I, I made a joke before about you being, uh, a, having a, being a boring guy, which was completely ironical because, to the contrary, you have a lot of really cool stories about wrangling crocodiles and about, you know, you, you've worked on movies with these guys. You, you, you've been on documentaries and whatnot. You're, you've, got, you've got a really interesting life, which doesn't, isn't what I think of as scientists having. I mean, you're like one of those movie scientists. You're not like a real scientist. But when you gave this talk, you were up there saying science things about, about crocodiles. And, and the way you explained them made me think of crocodiles as these biologically evolved submarines. They're these submersible predators. 
uh, and you explained things like about how long they could stand their water and how long it took them to digest their food, so therefore how often they had to hunt and the way their senses were aligned to be out, sticking out of the water while they're invisible and those fins affecting sunlight. Like It was all this cool science talk, and it made me think in a way of... Uh, have you seen Alien? Uh, yes, a few times. So Ash admires the aliens. He's got this weird admiration for them as these perfect species. It made me think of that. So you're, you're, you're saying that I'm an android. You might be, for all we know. Could <laughs> be. I haven't figured that one out yet, actually. I would never know, of course, if I was. If you were a Blade Runner type one, you would not know. That is correct. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, no, I mean, I, I've always, um, I suppose it could be viewed as being a bit creepy. You know, here's this guy trying to explain why these animals are just worthy of your attention, which is basically what I try and do. Um, I've always believed that scientists have got an obligation to explain and to teach the general public about what they do. It's one of the reasons I don't work at a university anymore is because I get really tired of that white tower mentality where you know you only do the work that your peers ever get to read. I think that actually learning something learning how to actually conduct science and then getting out in the real world and applying it um, is, well, that, that's what interests me anyway. And so the whole idea of crocodiles, why would anyone be interested in crocodiles is something that I've got to try and get across to people. Um, I, I've also got to do it in my job because we have to try and convince people that these animals are worth conserving. Uh, and it's not always easy when they potentially can eat you. And so you've, you've, I just enjoy it. I enjoy trying to get across a little bit of my enthusiasm about crocodiles to various other people. Mm -hmm. And now you actually have crocodiles. You, you don't just have like a lab. and uh, you, you, know, you, you actually live at a place where there are crocodiles that you keep, correct? Yes, that's right. How many crocodiles do you have in your yard right now? Right now I've got seven crocodiles in my yard. Do each of these crocodiles, here's a goofy question, uh, do, do these crocodiles have names? Do you name your crocodiles? Well, actually, um, four of them have got names, and the other three don't. Well, don't ask me why, but we just haven't got around to naming them yet. Um, are, are, they, the, are they new arrivals? Will they get names? Yes, they're, they're new arrivals. They're, they're juveniles, little juvenile freshwater crocodiles, and I'm sure that their names will, will come to us in time, but at the moment... Um, Look, one, one of the, 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 the biggest crocodile that we've got is um, it's called Smog or Smaug, depending on how angry you are about the way Tolkien pronounces his name. Um, but he's obviously named after the dragon in The Hobbit. And he's 15 foot long, which is that's about 4.7 meters. So he's, he's quite a monster. Um, and his, his mate is called Esther. And the reason she's called Esther is because... The, uh, the guy who raised her um, decided to name him after his ex-wife. <laughs> Tell us why. <laughs> and then we have, we have Gummigan uh, and Nal, and those are two Aboriginal names for freshwater crocodiles. Nal, because that's how this particular clan perceives freshwater crocodiles making a noise. They go, meow, meow. And Gummigan is simply the name from uh, East Arnhem Land. Um, and then the others don't have names yet. And yeah, maybe you, maybe we can have a competition to name crocodiles. <laughs> uh, now, if uh, what are you going to do with seven crocodiles? Well, we use them 
we use them almost exclusively for filming. Um, I mean, it's probably very confusing to people what we actually do. I mean, I'm a zoologist, so we do science. We run our own company. And we basically, most of the work that we do is management-based work. So we go out and we advise the government on how to manage crocodiles. We go out and count the number of crocodiles that are in river systems so we can make recommendations about how they should manage those crocodiles. At the same time, we do a lot of research as well, various things, questioning questions about, you know, what kind of bacteria are found on crocodile teeth and can crocodile blood be used, be used as an antibiotic and can you use the genetics of crocodiles to figure out where they're coming from. Uh, and, of course, all this kind of stuff attacks, attracts the attention of the media. They love it. They think it's fantastic. And so we've been dealing with film crews for about 15 years. And the BBC, and National Geographic, Discovery, all of these guys come out to us on a fairly regular basis to make yet another program about crocodiles. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things we wanted to do was to set up our facilities here so that we could give these guys the best chances of getting some really cool shots of, of crocodiles. So we've, we've built this large, um, this large, we call it a crocodile filming pond, where you can actually get in the water with the crocodiles, but the crocs are on the other side of a barrier, obviously. Um, and the water's crystal clear, and we've got lots of native fish in there and all kinds of other things. It looks like you're just getting into somewhere on the local river except there's a giant crocodile on the other side. Well, two giant crocodiles on the other side uh, of the mesh. And there's viewports in the mesh, so you can film the crocodiles doing their thing, and we can, we can manipulate the crocodiles because we've trained them to do certain things. So a lot of those shots that you see on the Discovery Channel of crocodiles from underwater lunging and grabbing whatever, things like that get filmed in, in our facility. Um, and we also frequently catch them and bring them out, and we'll, if you see a, a shot of a crocodile, walking through the bush. It might actually be our crocodile that's basically walking through the bush outside our house. Um, so, yeah, we do a lot of that kind of stuff. Now, those seven guys you've got there, uh, and I ask partly because of what's happened recently at SeaWorld, which is a, an amusement park here in Florida, where uh, a killer whale dragged a trainer down and uh, into the water and she drowned. Uh, is, is there anything you can do to make a crocodile more manageable or less inclined to bite you, or is that always a danger with every crocodile that you have? Yeah, I mean, it's always a potential risk, but, I mean, we view crocodiles, I think, a little bit differently to the way that most people do. We, we see crocodiles as these inherently curious animals that are always looking for food, um, but if they find themselves in a situation where they're not sure what's going on, they'll run away and hide. Uh, they're, they're actually quite cowardly in some respects. Um, you see a crocodile on the bank and you walk up to it, and the first thing it's going to do is dash into the water and go and hide. Of course, when it's in the water, <laughs> then it sort of turns around and comes back at you and to have a look. Um, and, and so we sort, of, we sort of treat crocodiles that way, but we never forget the fact that obviously they're potentially capable of killing us. We obviously have pretty strict safety protocols when we're working with them. Um, I mean, we, we don't tend to do a lot of the kind of crazy stuff that you see on the TV sometimes where people go in and jump on the back of these things or, or feed them by hand. Um, we, we, we like to try and keep our animals as, as wild as possible so the behavior is as natural as possible so that when you're filming them, what, what, what goes up on screen is actually believable. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we, we, just take, we just take a lot of precautions. Um, I mean, we, we, we never interact with the animals uh, in front of the public, obviously. Uh, like somewhere like, like SeaWorld would do. 
Um, but at the same time, we've often got film crews there. Uh, and they, some cameramen are absolutely scared stiff of crocodiles. You, know, <laughs> you wonder why they've been, they, they wonder why they've got the job for the shoot. Uh, and other cameramen are just totally blasé. They're like, oh, yeah, don't worry, I've filmed these animals before. And they go in, you know, they want to go into the enclosure and they've got their eye clamped to the eyepiece of their camera. And they've got no idea how far the crocodile is away from them, especially if they're using a wide-angle lens. You just, you've got no idea, no awareness. Uh, so we have to try and keep these guys under very strict control. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the, well, we, fingers crossed, we have a perfect, perfect safety record so far. <laughs> What, of the seven guys you've got there, and I remember asking you about this a little bit at the, uh, when you gave your talk, um, of the seven guys out there, can you distinguish amongst them as far as them having different personalities? Uh, are there any of them that are, are more aggressive or more socialized, uh, or is that not a way, is that not how you look at a crocodile? Can you not discern that? No, no, absolutely, absolutely. They've all got, they've all got very different personalities. Um, and like, like I said at the talk, you often, if you try and say, as a scientist, if you try and say something <laughs> which, is, which is deemed to anthropomorphize the animal, mm-hmm. people stop taking it seriously. But the fact is, that's missing the point, because these animals do have different behaviors. They do have different personalities, um, and they're unique, and they, they do have different moods. I mean, anyone who's kept a dog will know that these animals, the dogs have got different moods. You know, when they're sulking, when they're happy, when they're not happy. You can see it. You can see the way their body posture, the way they hold their ears, um, the way they vocalize. That's all that dog communicating to you. So the idea that animals don't have emotions, of course, is, is nonsense. But you can, you can go further back than that. I mean, I can look at a crocodile, and because I understand the way that the animal communicates, the way it holds its body and its posture, and the way it behaves, I can see that the animal is annoyed or that that animal is hungry or, you know, it's, it's sulking. I mean, we, we frequently have to take our crocodiles out of the main pool into these holding pens that we've got so that we can get into the pool and do some work on it. And every time we do that, it's fun because, you know, we, use, we usually use a, a chicken and the crocodiles, you know, their eyes light up and they come dashing out of the water. <laughs> oh, oops. And they're not interested in me. I mean, if I tripped over and dropped the chicken, the crocodile would run straight over the top of me and go and grab the chicken. <laughs> it's just not interested in, in, in eating me. It's learned that that's where the food is. And so we get the crocodile into, into the pen, and then we shut the gate. And then the crocodile, after a certain period of time, suddenly realizes, oh, no. <laughs> and then they spend about, they then spend the next few hours trying to get out again. <laughs> so, but they don't want to get out um, to escape. They want to get back into the pond that they came from. In fact, I could leave the gate open on the other side of the enclosure and they wouldn't go out of it as long as it was, as long as it was on the far side uh, away from the pool because they just want to get back to that pool. <laughs> and they stop eating and they go and sit in the bottom of the little holding pond that we've got there and they, for, for all intents and purposes, they sulk. And that's really the only way that you can describe it. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I, I can sit here and I can give you, I can throw a lot of scientific terminology at you as to as to why the animal is behaving the way that it is. But at the end of the day, <laughs> its personality is there. It's very clear. I mean, the female is she's a she's a real sweetheart actually. I mean, she wouldn't harm a fly. Well, she'd harm a chicken, but not a fly. <laughs> and that's Esther, right? You said that's Esther, yeah. Um, but she's old. She she must be about seventy years old, um, and you can tell she's got that sort of. It almost looks like she's got a bit of arthritis to her. Um, we took her on out of pity more than anything else um, because she gets on really well with, with Smog, the male. Um, 
and it's quite interesting to watch these two crocodiles interact. We we actually fed fed Esther a dingo a, a few weeks ago, and she she picked this well a few months ago, actually, but she picked this thing up. And she couldn't she couldn't break a piece off because it was too big for her. So small could already eat and came back over and grabbed the dingo again. And we thought, oh, you know, greedy bugger, he was going to eat it. But now he didn't. What he did was he swam over to Esther and he just he just floated there and allowed her to grab onto it and then twist her body so that she could twist the piece off. It was very deliberate. And and these two animals clearly have a relationship. You know, I don't want to start using words like, you know, well, I'm not even going to go there. But the fact is that these animals have got a, a relationship. They recognize each other and they interact with each other. There's a lot more going on there than people think. Adam, that is adorable. I, I love that. <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, do you have, uh, now again, taking off your scientist hat, uh, do you have a favorite? It sounds like you're, you're kind of partial to Esther. I am, but Smog is, is he's the hero. He's, he's just fantastic. Um, Was Smog the one in Blackwater? Um, no, he wasn't, actually. We, Smog, we got Smog after we did Blackwater. Um, most of the, we, we used about 15 crocodiles for Blackwater because certain animals are very good at certain shots, certain behaviors. And so we'd say, right, you know, we'll get this animal to launch itself out of the water. We'll get this animal to jump out of the water vertically, all that kind of stuff. Now, you, you have seven crocodiles there, but you say you used 15 in black water. And just to let people listening know, there is an excellent Australian horror film called uh, Blackwater. It is one of the – there's a whole bunch of horror movies about crocodiles, most of which are terrible. Uh, and, Adam, you, you helped – you were basically in charge of getting the crocodiles to do the things they needed to get the shots for, for the movie. Um, how did you use 15 different crocodiles? Did you have that many on the premises, or did you go out in the wild and use crocodiles? Well, the filmmaker, I mean, the director wrote to us early in the piece, uh, and he said, look, I want to do, we've got this indie film that we're doing, and we want to use real crocodiles. He said, first of all, we can't afford CGI, and secondly, he said, I, I just don't think it's going to look very good. And he was right, because there's another film that came out about the same time called Rogue, um, much higher budget film, $50 million, I think it was. I don't think it ever came to the U.S., but they used a CGI crocodile, and it looks like a CGI crocodile. It's yeah. It doesn't behave normally. So we were very supportive of, of actually trying to get as many shots as possible with real animals. And some of the things that he suggested in his script, he sent us a storyboard, and we're like, well, you're going to have trouble getting that one. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we, we, we managed to um, – and what I, did, what I did was I said, look, you know, these, these, different, these different animals, you know, this animal will do this shot and this shot and this shot, but we'll need to use this other animal for that shot and that shot and that shot. And we have a, we have a, a good working relationship with the local crocodile farm, which is about five minutes down the road. And, of course, they have large numbers of large crocodiles. Mm. Um, so that's where the other 15, 15 animals came from. Mm -hmm. now, now, this leads me to ask you about the second thing that I was struck by at the, the talk you gave, um, and that is people really want to hear about, and they're obviously fascinated by this, and, and I can understand why, the, the grisly details of, of how people get killed by crocodiles. Uh, that, that's what's fascinating about them is that they're killers, and people sometimes do get killed by uh, crocodiles. Um, it, how, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about the reputation that crocodiles have as, like, killer monsters and the subject for horror movies? Um, well, it's, it's difficult on one... I mean... Many, many, many years ago, when I was about 15, I had to try and reconcile this to myself, this whole issue of the way that I felt about crocodiles. Because, I mean, I, I got into crocs when I was about six. Um, 
I remember reading this book about dinosaurs and there was a page there about what they called the living dinosaurs, which wasn't quite true, but there they had this page about crocodiles. And I thought, well, why work on dinosaurs? I'm going to work on living dinosaurs. That's far more interesting. <laughs> so I became obsessed with crocodiles back then. And, of course, you know, I went through the phase that, you know, you might do with these things of thinking these animals are completely awesome and, you know, everything should be done to conserve them and, and all of the priorities are rescinded to go back to the alien thing again. And I thought, and, and then, you know, as I matured and got a bit older, I realized, you know, here you've got an animal which most people hate. They really do not like them. Uh, and the reason for that, of course, is they kill people. Um, and they do. And now crocodiles in particular kill several hundred people a year. You never hear about it because, you know, it's people in the deepest, darkest Africa. and You never hear about that stuff in the news, but it happens all the time. Um, and crocodiles have got a well-deserved reputation. What? So what, this is one of the reasons I became interested in, in being a zoologist and getting into this field of conservation, because this presented a challenge to me. I thought, well, how do you convince people to conserve an animal that they hate? Um, I mean, I think it's fascinating, but I can understand why most people don't find it fascinating. And, and the ability to be able to look at someone else's viewpoint and nod your head when they're talking about the fact that they hate these animals and understand why, where they're coming from there, I think is a lot of, it, it, it's something that a lot of people miss in conservation. Um, you, sometimes you lose sight. You think, oh, we've got to conserve this animal at all costs. We, we, can't, we can't make any concessions. But I think you, you have to in some ways. I mean, the world's not getting any bigger. And the human population is getting a lot bigger. Habitat availability is getting a lot smaller. And yet we want to keep these animals around. And if it's the kind of animal that kills people, I think you have to be a little bit, uh, well, you have to be a little bit inventive uh, in the way that you actually try and conserve them. Um, so I think it's, I think in some ways, keeping people aware of the fact that crocodiles are potentially very dangerous is a good thing, because one of the things that kills people up here uh, is not people who are aware of crocodiles that are dangerous, but people who are not aware of the danger that they're in when they're doing things around in crocodile habitat people will be attacked by a crocodile and those that survive will usually say something like I had no idea that I was in danger there or I had no idea that there was even a crocodile found in this area and you know I'm not saying that Blackwater is the greatest educational film of our time <laughs> about crocodiles but the fact is that you know you, you've got to sort of get that message across um, and I think you I mean I talked to someone we've just been doing a documentary um, the last couple of weeks and I had the task, which was extremely difficult, of interviewing someone whose daughter was killed by a crocodile um, Ooh, about wow. eight months ago. And, you know, if, I, was, I was pretty scared about this because I thought, you know, how, how is she going to view me? I mean, I have to convince her that I'm actually on her side, that I'm not some, you know, greeny tree hugger who, you know, is going to think, well, your daughter shouldn't have been swimming in the water. I've got to, I've got to try and empathize with, with where she's coming from. Um, and at the end of the day, it, 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 was, it was one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had with anyone. Um, she was, first of all, I mean, she, she'd come to terms with it uh, in many ways. Um, she had realized that, you know, you live here in the Northern Territory. It's, it's an amazing place full of wildlife. But there's also, you know, there's a lot of dangers here. There's snakes here. There's mosquito-borne diseases here. There's crocodiles in the river. And you do everything you can to try and educate kids about these things. But at the same time, sometimes there are situations that you can't control. 
Um, I mean, anyone who's got kids knows that you cannot control your kids 100% of the time. Um, and it's just incredibly tragic when something like this happens. Um, I mean, you know, she could have been run over by a car on the road. And in fact, that would probably have had less of an impact because road, road fatalities these days, you know, who cares? I mean, right, dime a dozen. Right, right. That, that sounds really, really, really harsh. But at the end of the day, you, this, they hardly even makes the paper anymore. Whereas being eaten by an animal alive, that's the kind of thing that really fires people's imaginations in many, you know, in, in many ways. And, and she, what, the, the way that she'd come to terms with it was that she said, look, if, if her death through this crocodile can be used as a way of trying to increase people's awareness of the danger of these animals, then perhaps that was her purpose in life. Mm. You know, I mean, she, she obviously, that, that wasn't a, a destiny to, be, to die at the hand of a crocodile, but the fact is that, that, she can, that some good can come from it, and, and that was the way that she was able to reconcile it. Um, and, you know, I, and I, I had to agree with her with, with a lot of what she was saying in terms of the way... She felt that crocodile population should be controlled because, at the end of the day, when you when you live somewhere, you you accept. I think that if you go out into, say, Kakadu National Park, you don't go swimming in the South Alligator River because there's crocodiles there. You're in crocodile habitat, but you don't expect to go to the end of your driveway and find a three-meter crocodile in the creek there, which eats your daughter. And in a situation like that, everything should be done to remove an animal like that so that it doesn't represent a threat to people. And, and, I, and that's, that's the overriding theme with, with what we do with crocodile management, really, is to sort of say to people, look, um, crocodile conservation is a compromise. It has to be. You, you have to understand that crocodiles have got their place and that they're found in these areas and that they have a value, but you have to draw the line. And if, they, if the crocodile population comes too close to people and the risk is too high, then you have to do something about it. And if that means removing crocodiles and killing them and whatever, then that's the way it has to be. And in, in some ways, that's the price that these animals have to pay in order to be accepted by society. What, what are the laws there in Darwin? Like if someone sees a crocodile, can they, can they shoot it? Is that allowed? No. Crocodiles are protected here. Um, if... If, if an animal is, is, is deemed to be causing a problem, then the government department will come along and assess it and usually remove the animal. So, I mean, if anyone, if anyone sees a crocodile in an area that they think causes or, or constitutes a significant risk to human life, the government will come and remove that animal or do everything that they can to do that. And when you think about the fact there's probably 100,000 saltwater crocodiles in the Northern Territory, Taking out a few hundred every year is, is nothing. It's absolutely nothing to the crocodile population. So it's worth making that sacrifice, if you like, from the crocodile's perspective, in order, in order so that crocodiles can, can at least retain some modicum of tolerance or respect in society. Now, explain, uh, describe for me Darwin. What, what is it like living in Darwin? What, what is it like there? Um, Darwin is... Awesome. I, I mean, I, I'm not a Darwin native. You can probably tell from my accent. Um, I'm, I'm a native of the UK. So I'm actually a dual Australian and, and British citizen. And so for me, it's like being on holiday all the time. Did you, when did you end up in Darwin? You grew, you grew up in England? I, I, yeah, I grew up in England um, until I was uh, 16, and then I went to live in Hong Kong for two years. Um, and I traveled around the world a bit. I did my degree and my PhD back in the UK, 
and then once I finally had the tools that I needed in order to actually be a scientist, so I thought, uh, I came here um, to, to work on the crocodiles. And the, the crocodile management problem here was the thing that attracted me. That's what interested me. But, yeah, getting to Darwin, it was just like, wow, it's, it's, it's warm here all the time. It's just, it's just really beautiful here. I, I mean, it gets, very, it gets very hot and very humid um, in, in what's called a build-up in, in about September, October. Um, you've got two seasons here. You've got the, the wet season and the dry season. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you can imagine, the dry season, everything, everything looks dead and brown and crispy. But the temperature is really nice and pleasant. During the, during the wet season, everything's lush and green and beautiful, and there's animals everywhere, and it's fantastic. But, one, it rains a lot, especially if it's monsoonal rain. It rains continuously. Uh, and secondly, um, it's very hot and it's very humid, and a lot of people can't stick that. Um, but I like it. I, I've got used to it. Um, and do you live a ways out of town? You must. I mean, you can't. Are you near? How long does it take you to go grocery shopping, for instance? <laughs> well, we, we've, well we've, we've actually got, we've got a five-acre block, which is about uh, 35 minutes drive out of the city. I mean, Darwin's a city of 100,000 people. There's, there's as many people here as there are crocodiles. Um, and there's, there's various little satellite towns and villages, and, and so our nearest Woolworths is <laughs> just down the road, actually. Um, but we've got another property down by the Adelaide River, which is about 350 acres, um, which is just totally, it's got nothing on it at all. It's just absolutely in the middle of nowhere. Um, and, but there's, a, there's still, there's a little community nearby, about 15 minutes drive away. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, we're the kind of people who, we, 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 we seek solitude in some ways. We, we really enjoy space. I mean, I, I, could, I used to live in Hong Kong. I, I know what it's like <laughs> living in high-density areas. Um, you know, you can't walk down the street in Hong Kong in a straight line. It's impossible. You have to sort of swerve left and right to try and dodge all the people. Um, and it's exciting. I loved that life for a while. But, but after, after a few months, you just go crazy. You've just got to get out of there because it's just constantly go, go, go. Now, explain, um, explain what you mean. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Whereas, whereas out here, you know, it's just it, it, it's for a different pace of life. Um, and I think the older I get, the more I appreciate space. Um, I mean, that's why we've got this big 350-acre block. Eventually, we'll, you know, sell this place and move down there and build a house on it or whatever. Now, when um, you say we, explain uh, who you mean. My wife, Erin, um, okay. is my, 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 one of those people who uh, you, you spend your entire life trying to find. Um, she's someone who um, is as obsessed about crocodiles as I am. <laughs> which is, um, but, you know... She's also extremely smart and extremely cool, um, and uh, yeah, we, we we go through life together. Is is she there right now? Uh, she's in the other room, actually, um, recovering from this film crew that we had recently. Um, Would it be yeah. possible uh, to get her in here to say hello? Is that crazy? Is she um, Possibly. Let me, <laughs> let me go and um, can you put this on pause for a second? Have you got a pause button? You know what? I'm not going to put it on pause because I'm going to tell a story about meeting Erin while you go and see if she'll come talk to us. Right. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. So, all right. Now that Adam is gone, I'm going to confession. Erin is adorable. Oh, my God. She's adorable. So Erin looks kind of like Olivia Williams who plays – I think her name's Olivia Williams – who plays the school teacher in Rushmore. Uh and she's just got that perfect combination of like, like really cute, but also kind of dorky in an endearing way. Uh, and when we saw Adam give his talk afterwards, we all went out and got drinks and hung out. 
Aaron just has the most adorable story about beating Adam uh, and how they ended up together. So Adam is back. Any luck? I am. Um, <clears throat> I just missed her, actually. She just, she just <laughs> set off on a, on a motorbike. All right. So I don't know where she's gone. Well, I, I was just hoping she could say hello, and I, I just know she has an adorable story about how the, the two of you met, uh, which we'll save for another time. Uh, but I was very grateful to get to meet her. Erin is very, very cool. Um, she is, yeah. So uh, what is uh, what is what do you miss out on having by living in Darwin? Well, um, I think we miss because we're on the edges of society here. You could say the edge of civilization in some ways. You miss a lot of the benefits that civilization brings. So, for example, having an extremely reliable, fast internet connection, for example, uh, is one of those things that I think most people, not most people, but a lot of people take for granted, but here it's, it's a real struggle. Uh, in fact, even actually having a, a mobile phone that works, uh, that's actually in range, uh, even though we're only 30 minutes drive from the capital of the Northern Territory, we still can't get a reliable signal on our mobile phones. So there's a lot of stuff like that that you miss, and coming from the UK, there's there's a few... A few things that you can get in the UK which you can't get here, for example. Um, food, usually. But I've learned to adapt. I've, I've become a, a big supporter of Vegemite. So you know, <laughs> I've, I've, taken on the, I've taken on the Aussie lifestyle like nothing else. Now, what exactly is Vegemite? Uh, it's, it's, it's yeast extract from the brewing process, believe it or not. That sounds uh, really doesn't sound very, <laughs> it sounds doesn't totally sound very appealing. No. My, I've got a friend who used to call it, used to say, you know, are you going to have a yeast extract sandwich? <laughs> it didn't really make it sound very appealing, but it's, it's one of those things that, that it's, it's actually really nice if you have it in small amounts. Uh, a lot of people get this huge dollop of it and stick it on their bread and take a bite. and they're, Yeah, that sounds foul. Oh, it's disgusting like that, but you've just got to spread it really thin on your toast, and oh, it's really nice, especially with some butter. All right, so being there in Australia and having been won over by Vegemite, uh, and I can't really tell because I have an ear for an American accent, do you, have you picked up any of an Australian accent, or do people instantly know that you're a Brit? I don't know. You tell me. I mean, <laughs> I can't. I really can't tell. I, uh, okay, my, 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 accent, my, accents, my accent is um, because I used to live all over the place and, and talk to different people. I mean, when I was in the U.S., sorry, when I was in Hong Kong, I went to a school that had a lot of Americans, so I picked up a lot of Americanisms there. And um, every so often I'll, I'll pronounce a word in, in a very American way. Um, but then, of course, I've still got my British accent and I've got my Australian accent. So I've sort of I've integrated all of these different accents and come out with this strange amalgam. But <laughs> most people here recognize that I'm a POM, that I'm actually a British. Ah, you are a POMI, aren't you? <laughs> but, but when I go back to the UK, everyone says, oh, you know, you've got such a strong Australian accent, which I think is nonsense. It's I think just, I, yeah, I think I do hear it, Adam. I can't. I'm no authority, but I, I think I do hear the Australian accent. Uh, well, some people think that I'm South South African for some bizarre reason. So it's obviously my <laughs> accent's sufficiently vague that most people have no idea where I'm from anymore. All right, can you do an American accent now? Go. Oh, no. come on, come on, try. It. Here, here's a deal I'm going to make with you, Adam. Adam, I will try an Australian accent right now if you'll try an American accent. And and granted, neither one of us. It's not going to be pretty either way. I, I, I can, my brain is not even, right now, I, I can't even get into my brain. Uh, I can't even, I mean, the only thing I can think of right now is, all right, 
because we're all watching The Wire, of course, and, and everyone says, all right. I can't even tell what you're saying. Are you trying to say, I'd, like, all right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, there you go. That's right. <laughs> There's my American accent for you. Right, okay. Now, let's let's have the Australian Tom Chick, please. Here's what's terrible. I don't even know. Uh, le, le, okay, well, okay, here's what I can do, Adam. I, I've done this before. So, uh, of course, most Americans know about Australia from the Mad Max movies. So, I will do a line from Road Warrior in an Australian accent. Are you ready? Yes. No. Two days ago, I saw a vehicle big enough to haul that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. <laughs> there you go. That's my my well, terrible yeah, Australian accent. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you three stars. But I'm not gonna tell you how many stars. <laughs> Very diplomatic of you. Thank you. <laughs> so we've also talked about other quintessential Australian movies when you were out here, and I was delighted to know that you guys knew of a movie called Razorback, uh, which is that set in Darwin. Oh, I haven't seen Razorback. I haven't seen Razorback for 20 years. Um, I can't remember very much about it, apart from the fact it starred a very large pig. Right. It's, it's Jaws, but with a pig. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I still can't remember. I can't remember where it was set. Now, is is so you see, you see the Northwestern Territories is, uh, for instance, uh, Wolf Creek. Do you know offhand? No, no, no. That's not. No, Northwest Territories is in Canada. Oh, <laughs> what did you? What did you? What did you call where you are? It's the Northern Territory. Oh, Northern. Okay, no Western. And Territory, too. You've got to do it that yeah, way. Well, we, we, call it, we just call it NT here. Uh, what, what movies are set in NT? Well, Wolf Creek. Obviously, you've picked that one already. Right. Um, and by the way, I don't know if you know this, but the guy who did Wolf Creek is the guy who did the really bad big-budget alligator movie, Rogue. Yes, I, I know I, I know Greg McLean fairly well, yes. Um, he... Uh, he did a he did a reasonable job with that with that movie considering, but you know, well, I will say this: it, it was far better than the one set in Africa, uh, presumably about Gustav, that that primeval one. So, oh God, don't even talk to me about that one. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the, um, we saw one recently called Samson and Delilah, which is um, very interesting movie. Actually, it's it's not quite as good as I thought it was going to be, but it it. It, uh, it goes some way to scratching the surface of the, the problem with um, um, Aboriginal, um, Aboriginal people trying to survive in the Northern Territory um, around, around the cities like Alice Springs. Um, you know, there's, 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 there's a lot of problems here, a lot of uh, social problems uh, with Aboriginal people, and a lot of the movies that are set in the Northern Territory actually discuss these issues. So Samson and Delilah is, is certainly worth watching. It's not... I wouldn't say it's a classic. It's, it's mm -hmm. a lot of people say that it is, but I think it oversimplified the situation a little bit too much. Um, there's another really good one called Yulna Boy, um, which I'm sure you will probably have great difficulty finding on Netflix. Um, yeah, there's, there's there's not that many movies that were set in the Northern Territory. I mean, there's Crocodile Dundee, of course. I mean, how can we all forget that one? <laughs> Now, when you um, talk about the Aboriginal problems, I think of uh, of Rabbit Proof Fence, that Philip Noyce movie. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if that was set in the territory or not, to be honest. But it, it was, or whether it was simply a, a generic location. But but obviously, that refers back to you know the particular policy, um, right. uh, which Australian government is still trying to apologise for. I think a lot of, uh, yeah, it's, we here in the States have our own uh, situations like that as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you have a yeah, good... I mean, 
Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, Australia is a fantastic place, but yeah, I mean, it's it's not perfect um, by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, in many ways, here in the Northern Territory, we the NT is regarded as something of a frontier. Um, it's the, the sort of the last frontier. I mean, there are some places here that you can go and you would just be in an area that was totally out of time. You would have no idea what year it was. Um, the, the classic Mad Max stroke, Crocodile Dundee's, kind of a, a little shack in the middle of nowhere. Um, these places do still exist, but unfortunately Darwin itself is becoming more and more civilized, if you if you like, um, and it's, I mean, which we don't like here, because the whole thing that makes this place unique um, is the fact that it, it's not like Sydney, it's not like Brisbane, it's not like all these other places on the, on the east coast and the south coast. It's still different. You can still do things here that you couldn't do anywhere else in Australia. And, and for a lot of that, a lot of that's starting to change now, which is, I think, a shame. Right. Now, what do you do? What's, a, what's an average day like for you? Or actually, you know, what's a weekend like for you when you don't have to work, uh, when, when you don't have like a documentary you're working on or, or something? Uh, what, what's life like for you there on the compound? <laughs> the compound? <laughs> we, uh, oh, I don't know. We, we've got so much that sometimes it's very difficult for us because we run our own business to separate our lives from our work and we do have problems with this sometimes but when we really want to get away we just we just jump in the car jump in the four-wheel drive and just drive down the track um, drive to some somewhere in the middle of nowhere there's nobody and just go for a walk you know might take the dogs with us or whatever but just just somewhere where we can go and camp particularly during the dry season we just go and roll a swag out somewhere and just camp under the stars take a take a uh, uh, a billy with us so we can boil some water and take a little stove uh, or at least some matches so that we can cook some food and just get away from it all and, and just, just go and appreciate what it's like to be back in the bush. Um, I think in an ideal world we'd do that every weekend but quite often <laughs> our work seems to sort of seep over onto Saturday and, and into Sunday and uh, there are days when we actually don't know what day it is um, because <laughs> a lot of the work we do starts on a Thursday and ends, ends three weeks later on a Tuesday and you just... <laughs> You don't know where you are. Okay, so if, if we were like in a movie, for instance, and we're all on an airplane and the airplane goes down in the wilderness, you would be the guy who could probably get us through, right? Like you would know how to light a fire and what plants we could eat and how long it would take before we dehydrated. That could be you, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not so sure on the plants section. <laughs> I mean, um, the trouble is coming from, coming from the European continent to this continent, when I first got here, everything's like, oh, wow, what the hell's that? And people eat that? No, don't eat that. <laughs> some, of the, some of the guys here still play tricks on me. They'll say, oh, you should have this bush orange. <laughs> really not. And, uh, you know, like a complete deal, I grab this thing and bite into it. And the bush orange <laughs> is basically concentrated quinine. And you, know, you spit this thing out. It's just disgusting. Um, and I've fallen for this three times now. I've vowed never again. Wow, you're easy. <laughs> I, I think maybe no, when the first time someone tells me to put something in my mouth and it doesn't work out very well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fall for that one again. <laughs> oh, I don't know. You know, you, I'm too trusting of people. They say, "Oh no, don't worry, Adam, it's fine." And you look at them and they say, "Yeah, no." Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a failing. Now you are also, of course, or else you you wouldn't be around on the forum. You're a big video game dork, believe it or not. Uh, yes, believe it or not. I, I think I, a lot of people. 
It, and it is true. Now, I can attest to it, uh, because right before we started recording, you were taking your Uniwar turn, and you said you've got <laughs> six games going. Uh, yeah, while we've been doing this podcast, it's come up on my iPhone. You know, it is your turn on a Uniwar game about three times. That's right. Yeah, that, that's, uh, yeah I, I, fell, I kind of fell out with Uniwar. I mean, I enjoyed it. And I can't help but say, I should tell you, you were partly instrumental in discouraging me from <laughs> playing that game because well, I got right. I got pretty tired of you several times. Like I'm like, okay, one more game. Okay, one more game. After being soundly beaten by you three times in what I thought was going to be a close game, I decided forget Unowar. So I'm going back to my my beloved RTSs. Um, you, you were playing these moves, and every so often you you play this move, and I'm thinking, what? Why did Tom just do that? What was it? <laughs> <laughs> it was a gamble. It was a risk. <laughs> uh, it takes a while with that game before you before suddenly the mechanics click and you realize how it all works. But it's quite a quite a steep learning curve. Right. But and also I I had a couple of games going with people who had no idea what they were doing. Uh, and and those games those games were more fun, frankly. <laughs> I think you too. No, how dare you? <laughs> Uh, I was playing with a fellow who I used to do a column with uh, named Bruce Garrick, and I, I talked him into buying the game. Uh, Bruce, is, you think I'm bad at Uniwar? You should see Bruce. Bruce could not play Uniwar to save his life. And he's a really smart guy, and he does board games, and he knows math, but he just couldn't wrap his, hand, his head around some very basic principles in Uniwar. So believe it or not, Adam, there are some folks worse than me. <laughs> I believe you. Uh, now, it's true. Now, now, the game you want to talk about today, by the way, uh, I, I think you. Oh yes, we forgot about that, didn't we? Yeah. Well, I didn't because I want to give you some grief on this. I think that this is a middling game. I was not that impressed with it. We're not here though to talk about my opinion about it, though. I'm curious what you think about it. Why on earth do you want to talk about Dead Space from Electronic Arts? Ah, oh, well, there's a question, isn't there? Um, I I knew you'd have this reaction when I when I chose <laughs> this guy, but. Um, Look, when this when this call went out on the forum for these different games, you know, as with everyone, I'm sure this little top ten list of our best games ever would have automatically formed in our minds, and we would have thought, oh, I'll talk about that one and that one. But then I realised, you know, it's it's 15 years since I used to play Descent, which is the game that I probably would have talked about had I remembered enough about it. And I just didn't have the time to go and reinstall it and remember how to play it and all the mechanics about it. And you know, there are other games like Wizardry 8, which you know, it's just that's that's a game that really grabbed my attention. I played that for months and months and months, but I've totally forgotten all about it. <laughs> and I don't know, I'm getting old. But um, you know what, Adam? Real quick, time. I want to say I, I want to just cut in there because I I'm the same way. I it astonishes me people who can remember, for instance, the plot of of some JRPG they played three years ago. I used to be insane with this stuff. I, mean, I used to back when I had a. a I used to have this this old um, computer where you'd you'd you'd, um, you'd load the games in from audio cassette. Mm-hmm. I could take an audio cassette which had a bunch of games on, and I won't tell you why I had a bunch of games on, but you know I was twelve and you did these things. <laughs> yes. Fair. I could randomly press the play button and listen to five seconds of computer jargon. You know the the the, the bits and the digital bytes as they were loading, and I could identify which game it was. And I think God. <laughs> Would I ever that person? Could I ever remember that? But no, I mean, the reason that I chose Dead Space was because I was I was playing it at the time, and I thought, well, you know, I was really enjoying it, to be honest. And I thought, well, it's quite an interesting game to talk about, is this? Because in some ways it sort of encapsulates a, a lot of what I enjoy about 
playing games. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it first out, um, it, the, the thing about this game is that I think it's got in spades is atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And I've always been a big proponent of the idea that if a game can get the atmosphere right, you can forgive a huge amount of sins uh, in that game. I mean, <laughs> I, one of the first games I ever played back in 1982, wow, um, on this little computer called the Sinclair ZX81, which had, um, it had 1K of RAM. It's 1K of RAM. <laughs> and it had, it had a 16K RAM pack that you sort of plugged into the circuit board. And you'd load various games into it. And one of these games was called 3D Monster Maze by J.K. Gray Software. And I can remember everything about it in perfect detail. And the resolution of a ZX81 is something like 48 by 27. Ouch. I mean, its, it's, it's, it's screen was made up of characters. Um, and you could... Some of the characters were basically large squares and, and chessboard like patterns and so various enterprising games programmers use these to construct what would basically look like an ASCII image to us these days um, which you use to play the game with and and this game this 3D monster maze it was essentially it was a maze a random maze that was generated it was set the atmosphere you, you load it in after five and a half minutes of waiting for this tape to load 16k and it would, you know, this clown would appear on the screen and he'd say, roll up, roll up, come and see the great Tyrannosaurus Rex preserved for all time in silicone. Um, and it set this fantastic atmosphere and you know, wow, you know, what is this game? And then he would say, you know, the mists of time will roll over you um, as you are transported to the maze. And the mists of time were this computer, was this computer going into what's called fast mode where in order to actually create the maze, it turned the display off in order to increase its processing time. <laughs> and it took about... It took about 30 seconds of this thing um, <clears throat> with this grey mist, and eventually you'd be there in this maze. And this thing was represented by these little tiny, you know, the, the, sorry, these, these extremely basic graphics. And yet, as you moved around the maze, you had this message along the bottom that said, you know, he is hunting you, and you can hear footsteps approaching. And then suddenly it would come up, run, he's, he's behind you. And <laughs> this was terrifying. And, this, 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 this simple little game with these incredibly simple graphics created this incredible atmosphere of tension and fear of being chased around this maze by the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Um, it's, it's, I've never forgotten this game. And now, and, now um, oh, go ahead. And, and, and so, you know, you think if, if a game like that can create such an atmosphere to hide its, its primitive nature, um, then anything is possible if you can create the right atmosphere. And yeah, I mean, a sort of dead space in some ways harks all the way back to that, that paranoia and fear playing that game. I cannot play, seriously, I cannot play 3D Monster Maze these days on an emulator. It scares me. It scares me witless. I cannot oh, play it. because I was going to suggest that that's probably because you were, whatever, 10 years old or whatever. But, no, but that, that's it's still... psychologically scarred me for life. But that, wow. Well, now, so um, in, in Dead Space, describe for us, in Dead Space, you play a character named, I believe his name is, is uh, Arthur Asimov, is that correct? Uh, no, no, Isaac Clark. Ah, I was close. Okay, uh, and, and des- describe for us the game. You're, it's basically a haunted house spaceship game, yes? Yeah, well, it, it's you. You start off the game in a shuttle, and it, it sets the atmosphere really well at the beginning. Um, it, you're in a shuttle. Mm-hmm. The character that you play has actually got your back to you, 
you, it's, uh, he's, he's got his back to you and he's sitting in this chair and you've got these two main characters at the front discussing the fact that you're approaching the, the USS Ishimura and they've lost communications and you're just going to check the transmitter. It's the classic setup. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, know that you, you know, of course, exactly what you're going to find when you get there. But it spends, it spends a good five minutes, I think, I haven't timed it, but several minutes in this opening sequence where you can't really do anything other than move the camera around and it scrolls the credits through. And it, it's a very movie-like opening. Yeah, it's been done before, that kind of thing. But the whole purpose of it is to set the tension of this atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And the graphics uh, do an extremely good job, I think, of, of putting you in that space. Um, uh, and, and eventually you see the Ishimura and you end up crashing on the damn thing. Um, and you start off and, and you know that everything's going horribly wrong. Um, but the rest of your crew has no idea. And so you get off the shuttle and you walk down. And by this time you've got control of your character. And so obviously this is an extended tutorial where you get to figure out how you control the character and what kinds of basic things that you can do. Um, and then it puts you into this room um, where you're trying to communicate, you're trying to find out what's going on. And your first, the first thing you have to do is you have to leave all of the characters in this room and go through a door to a window where you have to operate some kind of security terminal. I can't remember what the exact details are. And of course, you know, you can see what's going to happen. You can see these people in the room and you're outside the room. And even though you know exactly what's going to happen, by this time, I mean, in my case, you could cut the, cut the tension, cut the atmosphere with a knife. It was palpable. And uh, suddenly, this giant creature, um, this horrific creature, just drops into the room and starts killing some of the team. Um, and across the intercom, you hear, you know, Isaac, get out of there, move. And you turn around, and the first thing you see is these creatures coming through the through the doors to you it's not it's not just a uh, it's not just a an experience where you're viewing what's going on suddenly you're there with these things attacking you and it, i don't know i just it, it immediately sets you on edge it immediately attacks you literally and, and, and figuratively and, and 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 puts you um takes you out of your comfort zone and now um, one of, one of the things that it does that I, I should point out is that the main character whose name i believe is is it harlan zelazny did I get that right? That's the guy's name. No, Piers uh, Niven. Uh, Piers Niven. I, I forget the, the name. Anyway, this guy. I'm, I'm sure I did. <laughs> giving you a hard the time. Names of the these name. people just bounce off me sometimes. <laughs> so your main character, whose name is George R. R. Tolkien, uh, he is not a soldier, if I'm not mistaken. Right? Part of the whole angle is you're not a, a space marine. Yes. Exactly. You're, you're, you're an engineer, in effect. You're, you're a technician more than anything else. Um, and I think this is what, what makes this game frightening in a way. I mean, you, you're suited up in this, well, <laughs> some kind of engineering suit. Um, but it, it, it doesn't really give you, doesn't really afford you that much protection. Um, and when you start off, you have no weapons. There is nothing that you can do. So when, you, when these things are running at you, it's horrific abominations are coming out of the door attacking you. There's nothing you can do apart from do what you would normally do, and that's run. And so you've got the situation where you don't know where you're going, because this is an area you haven't explored before. You're running down a corridor. You know there are things behind you that are chasing you. It's, 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 it's your classic setup. You get into the lift. You turn around. You press the button. Of course, the doors don't close. And <laughs> the, the, uh, one of the creatures tries to open the doors to attack you, and eventually you manage to get to some degree of safety. 
Mm-hmm. But from that point, the tension never lets up. And, and I think this is what, what made this game for me. Is it, It's so... <laughs> I was reading the, the, the thread in the forum about this game, and a lot of people did not find it frightening. And then, uh, and then there's another group of people who found it absolutely terrifying. And I was one of the group that found it absolutely terrifying. Um, and, I mean, the situation that I played this game, as I do with a lot of them, is at about 11 o'clock at night, with <laughs> all the lights out, with headphones on, with the sound up high. And the, the atmosphere that the sound and the music plays in this game is, I think, very instrumental in, 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 in selling it as a game, selling its atmosphere. If you were to try and play this game you know, on a sunny day with, with, no, with the sound turned down, you would, you'd, you'd think, you know, what is the appeal of this? You wouldn't see it. It's all about generating atmosphere, um, which I think it does extremely well. Now, even though you're not a soldier, uh, it's still uh, you, you end up getting weapons, and the character uh, Philip K. Bradbury, I believe that's his name, uh, he ends up getting uh, quite an arsenal. But the the twist, if I recall correctly, is that a lot of it was supposed to be like repurposed uh, mining and scientific gear, right? Like, like they weren't just like laser guns, right? Uh, and and then also it did, and this is part and partial of the inner of the uh, the atmosphere you were talking about. It, didn't it have a very uh, stylized interface in that you didn't have a HUD that showed you your ammo left and your health? Like, wasn't your health part of your backpack? Like, you could see a meter on your suit or something, and if you opened your inventory, it was an in-game holographic screen. Like, they did some cool interface yeah. stuff, if I recall. That's right. They, they, tried to, they tried to take the interface away. I remember when I first, when I first heard about this game, um, I mean, this game ticked all the right boxes for me because... I mean, I'm a fan of science fiction, uh, a huge fan of, of, of movies like Alien, Aliens, and The Thing. And here we have a, a game that looked like it was made for me. Um, but one of the things that worried me about it was the fact that it was in third person. Ah, but, right. Well, immersion is something which, which helps atmosphere, I think. And so to have the camera behind your character so that you're not actually the character, you're playing someone else who's your character, who's your avatar. Oh, God, I shouldn't mention that word anymore. <laughs> you can't talk about avatars anymore. The word's anyway, kind of ruined, um, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, I was worried about that. But, but obviously what they've tried to do is to, despite the fact they've taken you out of this person's body, they still try to remove the reminders of the fact that you're in the game by taking away the hut. So, you know, I appreciated that. It, it, it worked. I mean, a lot of it was fairly, fairly contrived. Uh, in the way that they did it, but it worked. It's a game. You know, we're, we're not criticising this as a as a novel or a, a piece of scientific literature or whatever. It was a game, and it worked extremely well. Well, now let's talk about it a little bit as a piece of of science fiction. Uh, so let's let's talk spoilers. Did, did you get to the twist? By the way, do you know the surprise ending? Uh, well, I, I beat the game to the okay. end. Yes. So. so so is it okay if we spoil the ending about uh, what? His name, I think, is Philip Jose Heinz. Uh, what he discovers okay. at the end. Yep. Yep. Um, go on then. Oh, isn't it? There, there's an imaginary. Is it his sister, or what? There's. It, it's, it does an imaginary character twist, doesn't it? Yes. It, it, it's. You see, even though I played this game to a couple of months ago, I've already forgotten details of it, <laughs> such, as, such as the impact of the game. Yeah. I mean, the. the, the, the Essentially, it seemed to be that, I don't know how you interpret this, whether he was hallucinating this, um, 
or whether or not. Um, but yes, he was he was imagining uh, a lot of this by the end of the game. Um, and I don't know. I mean, this, the people criticise this game for its story, mm-hmm. but to be honest, there's a lot of games that you play where the story is very integral to it. But this wasn't one of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think everyone who played this game would agree that you know it was it was picking off it was picking fairly low hanging fruit in, in terms of creating a story. It's something that had been done before. The scenario had been done before. A lot of the plot, to it, a lot of the elements to it, were essentially saying, "Look, okay, you're at point A. Now you've got to get to point B, um, and here's the reason. But whatever the reason happens to be, you've got to get to point B. Uh, and every single stage that you play in the game is essentially the same gameplay formula. And if you look at it from that perspective, you think, "Oh well, you know, that's not particularly interesting." But to me, what was interesting was the getting from point A to point B. That was the game. Um, it, you know, it, it's, it's the old adage about it's not arriving at the destination, it's the journey there, which is important. Well, when you say that, Adam, I'm reminded of a lot of, uh, as a huge fan of horror films, I see a lot of them, a lot of them are terrible. But a good horror film doesn't necessarily need a compelling story or a twist. And in a way, it doesn't even have to be coherent. So I'm I'm wondering, like, why do I have this objection about the story and Dead Space being not very good, which it's not terrible, it's just not very good, when I don't mind in a horror movie if, if it can be incoherent if it's at least got style or atmosphere. And, and yeah, I think and that's, that's right. probably a, a fair assessment of what, what's going on with Dead Space there. It's so, I, so the thing is, I'm wondering that if you didn't enjoy Dead Space, that tells me that you didn't enjoy the experience of playing it. It, it didn't have the intended scare factor, it didn't have the intended atmosphere for you. Um, I don't know whether that's correct assumption or not, but... Well, let me, yeah. let me throw my objection at you, and I'd be curious what, how you would respond to this. It, it, I think it did have atmosphere, it looked good, EA certainly does great production values, but I put a distinction, and I'm the same way with horror films, by the way, uh, a distinction between being scared and being startled. And I felt like Dead Space relied on... on on startling me way too often and and it got very predictable for me uh and and i should also confess i didn't get all the way through it i gave up about halfway through um yeah look i found i didn't find that i didn't have that experience my mine was a very different experience i was petrified for every second that i played (laughs) the game that the tension that was there that was created i i think in i think that, that the sound effects um, and the music, particularly the sound effects. I mean, those guys doing the audio did a stunning job with that. Yep. You're constantly checking around, you're turning around because you hear cans falling over, you hear hisses from behind you, you hear strange, unearthly noises, and you think you're going to be attacked at any moment, and you're not. And these spaces between encounters, to me, generated this incredible tension, so much so that several times I just had to switch the game off. <laughs> And I had to go and load, you know, some some game about, you know, jumping over flowers or something. I just couldn't stand it anymore. Um, Do you, you know, recall so any specific uh, super scary moments? Like, what, what can you describe for us? Moments where the game really freaked you out? Um, I think there was a, there was a, there was an area which where you had to basically go into the atmospheric processing area. Um, this this was I, I found this particularly freaky. There were a number of mutations. It was a special creature that you didn't actually see anywhere else. It was a humanoid creature, 
with what looked like angel wings, um, but I interpreted as lungs um, or spore pods that was growing out of its back. Um, and these things would sit there. They wouldn't attack you. They'd simply sit there looking miserable, wheezing, creating this, this awful, horrible noise, which you could hear from several rooms away. And the first time you heard these things, what on earth is that? And your imagination creates this incredible like, you know, creature in your mind. And when you see it, I mean, it, such is the effect that the sound has had on you that by the time you actually see this creature, I, mean, I spent several minutes just, you know, opening the door and having a look at it and thinking, oh, God, closing <laughs> the door again and thinking, trying to build up the courage to go into this room. Um, but when you actually realize that it's actually not an offensive creature, um, I mean, essentially all it is is it's an, it's an object for you to destroy. And as soon as you destroy it, then, of course, you know that all the vents are going to fall open and various things are going to fall in the room and start attacking you. Mm-hmm. And, and it's the anticipation of that. It's the fear of that. And, and there, was, there were two sections to this atmosphere um, I forgot what the level, the hydroponics level, was it? Um, and <laughs> that really is it. Really called the hydroponics level? It, it is, and and that always reminded me of System Shock Two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hydroponics in System Shock Two was probably the most frightening level on on there. So I don't know whether they did that, they did that on purpose, um, but I mean System Shock Two is another game. I don't want to get too far off the track. Where the whole atmosphere and the sound that it creates and, and generates—that's what I remember about that game. About the fear and hearing those monkeys, for example, and oh, uh, those monkeys, the, yeah. Oh, hearing, hearing the, hearing the, um, the, you know, the various robotic creations. Uh, it was, it was something that really was on edge, and so, and, and, and Dead Space played directly into that same fear, mm-hmm. um, and, and yeah, there were several times where, especially when I went into the second half of the hydroponics section, I was just about to open the main door to go in, and I couldn't. I, I had to I had to quit the game and go out because I knew that as soon as I opened that door and I stepped inside there that I would be assaulted from all angles. And I just couldn't take it. My my mind couldn't take it at that time. Mm-hmm. But what they actually did, and the reason I was expecting that was because, of course, in the first half of, of the hydroponics section, um, the uh, that's exactly what happens. You step in the room and you get assaulted from all sides by all kinds of things, and you only just manage to survive. So. Of course, when you go into the second set, second half and you expect the same thing to happen, it doesn't. Um, I, I appreciated the fact that they were, you know, that they played with you a lot. Mm-hmm. They, they knew exactly what they were doing to try and frighten you. And although a lot of it was cliched and you expected some of it, um, so, I mean, they, they applied every trick in the book, I think, to, to really set you on edge. And I appreciated those gaps between the action where the game didn't have to do anything other than provide an environment for you to walk around in and you created your own atmosphere you created your own fear uh, of what to expect next and i think that's what that's what i enjoyed about that about that game more than anything else now one of the big bullet points that ea used to to push the game and to talk about it um was it had what was called a dismemberment system so that when you're fighting the main character uh, whose name i have here it's uh, ursula mccaffrey that's uh, uh, the main character could attack someone with like that mining laser, and it would cut off limbs. Did, did that add anything to the game? Was that memorable for you? Did, did you get anything out of that? Yeah, it did actually. Um, Dead Space is the only game I've ever played where <clears throat> I basically used the default weapon for just about the entire game mm-hmm. um, because it was so much fun. I mean, it, it added. I mean, towards the end, you started to get some ridiculously powerful weapons, but that took that took a lot of the fear away. 
because when you've got a weapon in your hands that you know is going to be able to destroy whatever's in front of you, yeah, the fear starts to disappear. When you've got a weapon where you have to be very careful and precise about the way that you aim it, then it starts to take over again because these things dash out at you at high speed and you have to very carefully control your aim and, and take off the limbs. I thought it was pretty cool, actually. I mean, it, 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 what, 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 what I thought was interesting was the fact that it did actually make a difference where you shot these creatures. Um, I mean, the first thing I did when one of these slashes approached me was was um, go for the headshot. Um, and this was this was about ten minutes into the game. The response to that was that this thing suddenly tripled in speed, dashing towards me, <laughs> flailing without a head. <laughs> and that was not what I expected. I expected the thing to keel over, and it didn't. Um, and, and it was I think it was worth it for that one moment alone of, of pure terror. Oh my goodness, what have I done? Um, the fact that that you could buy yourself a little bit more time if you were being attacked en masse by shooting the limbs off various creatures that would then fall onto the floor and then continue dragging their way towards you. Um, it was just, as an effect, I think it worked. I think it worked really well. And it just added something more than, than, than simply pointing the mouse cursor over an enemy and pressing the left mouse button. You know, that reminds me, Adam, of uh, one, of the, one of the few things that I, I can't decide if I liked it or if I thought it was stupid, but a memorable touch in the last Aliens vs. Predator game is that every now and then, because we, we talked a little bit about Ash earlier when I was making fun of you being a, a cold, dispassionate scientist, uh, they have these synthetic combat soldiers in Alien vs. Predator, and you've been playing the game, learning to do headshots all along. You know, it's the best way to take out an alien or, or a bad mm-hmm. guy. Uh, well, when you when you hit a synthetic person with a headshot, as anybody who saw Alien will, will realize, it doesn't slow it down. It makes it more frantic. <laughs> so what you end up having to do, it's very much like the dismemberment in EA, is you, you basically have to saw the limbs off of these synthetic people uh, to incapacitate them and then just empty a bunch of weapons fire into them. You know, I, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate the fact that we've been trained over so many years to go for the headshot that... <laughs> I mean, the first time that you do that, and it doesn't work. It's worth it. It's worth it for the for the horror that you get. And uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of FPS games, but I usually get a bit tired of, of just pointing and aiming um, <clears throat> and firing. So yeah, I thought I thought that mechanism worked. I thought that mechanism worked pretty well. Now, a quick aside: Do you know the name of the main character in System Shock Two? Um, was it? Um, what was that that guy you keep talking about? Christian Morosky? <laughs> That's a good answer. I like your answer better than me. I was going to say... Was my that was very good. Uh, <laughs> System Shock 2, your character's name is H.G. Huxley, if I'm not mistaken. H.G. Huxley, yeah. Everyone's at <laughs> it. Uh, so one of the things... This will probably be one of the last games from Electronic Arts that doesn't have some form of multiplayer. You know, as, as publishers are, are dealing with fighting piracy and whatnot, it, it seems like multiplayer is an expected part of the, the package. Uh, so but one of the things that Electronic Arts did try to do with uh, Dead Space was they let you download new outfits for your main character, Bruce Gibson, uh, that you could buy online. Did you buy any downloadable content for Dead Space? I did not, no. Okay. Definitely. <laughs> Good for you. Don't reward them. It's like the new horse armor. Don't. don't. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm okay, potentially, with the idea of, of DLC. 
except when you realise that actually it was just the game they were going to sell you in the first place that they've decided to with, withhold and then charge you a bit more for. Not that anyone would ever do that, of course. Um, <laughs> but, no, I mean, I don't know. I was not sufficiently invested in the aesthetics of the character to want to pay for, you know, a different suit of armour. That was not what made that game for me. Um, it, it didn't make any difference, so no. It's, in, in fact, in some ways, when, when they offered DLC like that, you think, well, are they missing the point of their own game? I think there's a lot that they could have done. Um, I mean, to, to try and play to the strength of the game. Um, I mean, new levels, new areas, new creatures, all those kinds of things. That are, that's the, the experience of playing the game. Um, and being able to replay the game, for example, and go through the same areas, but have a different twist to it. Um, those are the kinds of things that, that's going to add playability to it, replayability to it. What, was there any replayability to, to Dead Well, there was, actually. If you, if you managed to complete the game... Mm-hmm. Um, then you could basically start a new game plus, as everyone seems to be calling it these days, where you could start the game with the same upgrades um, that you had ah. uh, finish the game. So um, you'd have to be on the same difficulty level, which was one of the problems. Um, but it meant that you could basically go through, and it will be actually it was actually a completely different game, because instead of being afraid of everything all of the time, you were essentially the super soldier from this point onwards. You had, after a fairly short period of time, you could max out quite a few of your weapons. Um, and then it became much more of a Twitch game, almost. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I played a little bit of that. I didn't get too far into it because I just ran out of time. Um, but it was, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed it, actually. And the, the basic mechanics of, of, of wading in there and, and targeting limbs, um, I, I, it still worked. It still works as a game. Um, but the... the the trouble is with a lot of those weapons, though, is that they don't take account of that um, dismemberment. I mean, you've something like some of the some of the, some of the more powerful weapons. You just point it at the torso, press the fire button, and bang. Ah, uh, right. right. Um, and and you, it, I still prefer to play it as though the um, you know as though you were using the mo- the most basic weapon. You had to really concentrate on on on, on targeting. I mean, in some ways, it was almost like playing. A, a, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is a really stupid thing to say, but yeah, yeah. when you're playing a twin stick shooter, for example, if if you get a lot of creatures homing in on you, you've got to prioritise the targets. And if you're in a 3D shooter, again, you've got to do the same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in this particular instance, you had to. You had to do that, um, you know, take particular care to do that, because if anything got sufficiently close, then you'd enter basically almost like a QTE animation where the thing would oh, launch right. attach itself to your, to your back and start chewing on your neck, um, and you had to do everything to try and get it off. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of appreciated that chaos at times. Mm-hmm. Were, were there boss fights? that brought, Were you okay with the, any of the weird boss fight things in Dead Space? Did those work for you? Oh, the, the greatest unexpected moment there was the first time the tentacle um, shot out of the holes in the wall. You keep seeing these holes in the wall, and you think, what's that? You look <laughs> in it, and you expect something to come dashing out, and it doesn't. Um, and they, I, I love the way they do this. They, they set these things up, and you see several of these holes in the wall, and then suddenly um, this tentacle grabs you as you're, as you're leaving a room and backtracking through an area. It grabs you by the foot, and it starts dragging you along the corridor. And you've got a few seconds to try and target the conveniently glowing yellow area on this <laughs> tentacle so it lets go of you. Um, and that was a lot of fun because, you know, especially the first time, you don't expect it. 
And then you've got this revelation of, oh, that's what that hole's for. That's, that's what's creeping around. And then suddenly, of course, the next time you see one of these holes in the wall, you say, oh, I know what's going to come out of there. And I just like the way that they play, play with you with things like that. Yeah. Um, the, the, I was just about to say, I mean, the, the, I mean, the other thing, of course, that made the game interesting was the zero-G uh, right. sections. Um, and, of course, one of the boss fights, one of the first big boss fights, takes place in one of these zero-G sections. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I thought that worked really well, actually. Um, that uh, this goes back to my love of descent. I think I, I, I love the idea that you can move anywhere in a 3D environment. Although obviously all you were doing was jumping from one spot to another spot, but the fact that the engine could handle that quite happily. Um, oh, this is another thing that always gets me because I grew up using these ancient 8-bit computers. Um, every time I see the engine handles something particularly interesting. I'm like, oh, wow, you know, imagine doing that on a, on a ZX Spectrum 20 years ago. <laughs> well, and also anything that, that takes advantage of the unique setting, uh, I, I think. And, and wasn't there, was the sound in that section just your breathing? I, may be, I might be misremembering that. It, it, it dulled the sounds of everything else, but it did a pretty good job. It didn't totally cut out the sounds from other creatures, but it, it almost... I can't remember 100%, but um, there was one section that I was looking at recently. Uh, and, and, yeah, you, it's your breathing takes over in the mask. And the sounds of your weapons you can hear, as you would normally, because, you know, you, you get some vibration transmitted through your suit. All right. But they're very, they're very dull in comparison to what they would be. Um, and the other sounds that are out there are, are pretty... You know, I don't know if you can hear them at all or whether they're just extremely dull, but I really appreciate it that right. to be honest right. and, the, and the, the music that took over at that time you know it played a, a, a different track of music which really you know, this really ambient spacey track which really set your teeth <laughs> it really sort of I thought in some ways just felt lonely when you're outside you realize you know if I were to jump off into into space I would just travel forever <laughs> uh, until I was picked up by a deep space towing vessel why do we keep going back to this Alien theme? <laughs> you know what? That's it, it, all. All it's like all science fiction. Alien has co-opted almost all science fiction, and certainly most science fiction video games. Uh, which, by the I mean, way, I got to say, Adam is another reason that I, I just feel so jaded when I try to play Dead Space. I'm so aware of the, the influences uh, that, that go into it, and and that shouldn't be a that shouldn't be a drawback, but sometimes it can be for me. Uh, well, yeah, I kind of agree with you in in theory, but in practice, I don't because. I mean, as a huge fan of science fiction, I should be jaded by this in some ways because I experience it so much. I mean, I, most of what I read is science fiction. A lot of the favorite movies that I've got are science fiction movies. And I, I love the whole idea of space and spaceships and alien creatures and all of that kind of thing. Um, but, um, it's, yeah, every single time another one of these games come up, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm there. <laughs> because, <laughs> and and I, I think, you know, I, I'll try and play another game which has got a different setting and a different area. And I just, every single time I brain it, it must be hardwired to appreciate science fiction. And I, I imagine that the other people, that, that, that other people perhaps don't perceive the games in anything like the same way that I do, because it's 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 obviously triggering certain endorphins every time I see a spaceship. And I think, wow, you know, I've got to get this game. It just works on me. 
Well, here's what I, here's my theory, Adam, and, and I don't mean this as a, as a judgment or anything, but I think a game like Dead Space, where somebody like me who's all like highfalutin and feels that he's above that kind of thing, and, and you know, I, I don't, Dead Space was very competent, and that's totally cool that people enjoy it, but I, I kind of can't help but think that in a way it's got to be comfort food for people who really dig science fiction. It's familiar to them, they kind of uh, know what to expect, it's, it's a familiar place, um, just that whole comfort food idea. Uh, yeah, I don't so, have a problem with that. <laughs> good. Now, so everything that you've uh, I said... I enjoy a good steak, even though I've had thousands of them. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Uh, but now, everything you've said, Adam, leads me to one place, and I, I'm so predictable, by the way. Uh, I, I suspect I'll be bringing this game up for, for years to come. Uh, but it makes me wonder, have you played Bioshock 2? Or Bioshock 1? I've played Bioshock 1. I haven't played Bioshock 2. It's my, my list of games that I need to play <clears throat> is getting longer and longer by the minute. <laughs> now, does, does that... Uh, because I think of Bioshock as it's a, it's a novel setting. It has a story that's built into it. It's got creepy bits. It's a good shooter. Um, th- does Bioshock work for you on the same level that Dead Space did, or do you think of them as apples and oranges? Um, I can see where you're going with that. I mean... I, the thing is, I was disappointed with Bioshock because I think I was one of these crazy people who was hoping it was going to be a bit more like System Shock, mm-hmm. except set in, or System Shock 2 rather, although except set in a unique setting. And the whole thing just appealed to me on a basic level. And I really appreciated the fact that Irrational did, did you know, set up this incredible world. Um, the atmosphere that was generated there was, was, it was a very, very effective, but Yet at the same time, it just didn't click. It just didn't quite work. I don't know what it was. Um, there was the, there wasn't quite as much tension there as I expected there to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I appreciated the story uh, in particular um, up until the twist, <coughs> the Andrew Ryan twist. Mm-hmm. Um, I was immensely enjoying it, and from that point onwards, I don't know. It seemed to lose its way a little bit, and I. I I finished the game, but it was a it was a slog. Right. The last the last three or four hours of that game were a real slog. Um, and you know, I thought, well, why 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 didn't I get this game? Maybe I just wasn't in the right frame of mind for it at the time, or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I enjoyed Dead Space a lot more than I enjoyed playing Bioshock, even <laughs> though I appreciate that Bioshock is a lot better game. Fair enough. That makes sense. No, yeah. Fair enough. Absolutely. Uh, so one of the things then that I'll I'll just leave you with this. Uh, I think one of the things that Bioshock Two does so well is it completely understands how the first Bioshock petered out. And Bioshock Two is one of those rare games that I feel gets better the the longer you play it. I mean, the, the further the you get tor- close to the end, the, the better it gets. It has this wonderful sense of saving cool stuff for last. Uh, the third act in Bioshock 2 is, I just think, a, a beautiful thing, uh, and, and I hope you'll get to play that at some point. Yeah, I, I get the impression from reading a lot of reviews and comments that a lot of people started playing Bioshock 2 and thought, oh, God, here we go again. Right. <laughs> and then suddenly it grabs you, and it takes you in a sufficiently different direction, and it does things sufficiently better than the first one that it's got you. Um, and, yeah, it's definitely... Definitely on my to playlist is that one, uh, along with Mass Effect 2 and 
Assassin's Creed 2 and God knows whatever else too. I'm still playing Fallout 3 at the moment, so I've got a long way to go in that. All right, here's a, here's a question for you. What is the main character's name in Bioshock? <laughs> um, I'm tempted to say Kelly Wand, but because that's really nice. <laughs> That would be good, but you're close. It's H.P. Vern. There you go. H.P. Sauce. <laughs> Is that brown sauce? It is. I love brown sauce. I was in school in in London for uh, for a semester, and one of the great things I discovered in London was brown sauce. How do you like? (laughs) Is that weird to like brown sauce? No, and it's definitely not weird. (laughs) Brown sauce is. Yeah, you're allowed to like. You're allowed to dislike Vegemite, and like brown sauce. Can you get brown sauce in Darwin? Yeah, absolutely. I've got some in the cupboard right now. What do you use it on? Um, eggs. Scrambled eggs in particular. Oh, that sounds really good. Oh, just scrambled eggs and brown sauce. Oh, it's just... Oh. Yeah. I can't believe you reminded me of that. I never, would have, I never would have thought that I would think of brown sauce ever again. <laughs> well, there you go. I can, dis- I can, I can derail any conversation. <laughs> so speaking of derailing conversations, I'm about to ask you a completely random question that has nothing whatsoever to do with anything that we've talked about. You ready for this? Okay. I'm, I'm ready. So I don't know if you know this, but you get, uh, there's a random question associated with each podcast, and there will be a thread on the forum with that as the title. Now, we're doing something a little different uh, this week. This thread will be in the movies sub-forum. Uh, you, Adam, will go into the drawing for a free game. Uh, if if uh, It's just a drawing. Anybody who posts in the thread using the rules, uh, their name goes in the hopper. Your name is in the hopper because you're on the podcast. Uh, when you post in this thread, your post must begin with the same letter as your username. Now, now, you don't have to do that, Adam. You're automatically in there. But, for instance, if I was to post okay. in there, it would have to begin with the letter T. So here's the range. I, I thought you might say that people have to reverse the, the, the Y and the Z in their, in their posts or something. Oh, you know, that's a good idea for a future one. Like, make like a typo kind of thing. Yeah. Now, this one, you just have to begin the same letter as your username. And here's the question. Okay. And, by the way, I apologize. These are really stupid. Uh, but, but here you go. Ready? I've gotten used to it right now. Okay. Is Paul Walker Australian? <laughs> um, well, I know several Paul Walkers. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to have to answer yes. <laughs> now, there's a famous Paul Walker, too. Do you know who that is? Like the movie actor guy from the Fast and Furious movies? I do, yes. I have have not the faintest idea of his nationality. Uh, uh, I know he's not, he's not Indian. <laughs> and uh, he's, he's probably not from Greenland, but apart from that, yeah, I don't know. Well, I don't know if you realize this, Adam, but here in the United States, it's a little weird for us when we discover that a certain actor, for instance, Naomi Watts, is Australian, if I'm not mistaken. But you would never know it because you rarely see her in a movie with her Australian accent. So yes. we get used to, like, you know, seeing these people in movies and falling in love with them and really liking them and having no idea that they're not American, that they are Australian. And the Australians are particularly insidious about this. Um, so, for instance, there's a, a, an Alice in Wonderland movie just came out. There's a fantastic actress playing the lead role. She was in an, a, a series on HBO called In Treatment. She's an Australian chick. You would never know it from listening to her talk. Uh, another actress in In Treatment... Uh, who was in this cool horror movie I saw recently called Triangle. 
uh, she's Australian. You know, you, these Australian people are everywhere. I know. They, well, they, they can't get much luck with the Australian movie industry, so they have to go over to the, to the U.S. Why can't they get much luck with the Australian? The, the, there's a thriving Australian movie industry, isn't there? Well, it's, 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 I wouldn't say it's thriving. Um, it's, it's certainly having a lot of difficulties. But there are still some very, very good Australian movies um, that are being produced. Um, but I don't think it's where the movie industry here would like it to be. Um, but, uh, yeah, they're, they're obviously, these guys are obviously much better at their American accents than I am. Well, it's sort of, well, that's because you're English, you see. <laughs> Although, I'll tell you what, I was watching, what was it recently? I was watching The Wire, mm-hmm. um, which everyone should do. Because Idris Elba, by the way, is English. I, I think a lot of people don't realize. It, wait, isn't that the guy? Oh, you know what? Is he even in The Wire? Am I thinking of someone else? I was just going to say Stringer Bell, a guy playing Stringer Bell. Yeah, isn't that uh, Idris Elba? I have Elba? absolutely no idea what an English guy. He's actually an English guy. So yeah. There you go. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and I'm sure there's probably other options. Uh, isn't, isn't, isn't Mac Nolte supposed to be an English actor as well? Nick Nolte? No, Mac Nolte. Jimmy Mac Nolte. Who's that? Have you seen The Wire? Oh, no, I've never seen The Wire. That's another thing. Oh. I know, oh. I know. I know, I know. I get that reaction. And I intend to see it. I, you know, it's one of those things that I'm like, I've got to get around to seeing it. I hear it's great. But I'm just daunted by the prospect of, what, what is it? It's like 11 seasons of 30 episodes or something. That's what? 330 no, 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 no. You're, you're mixing it up with something else. There's five seasons of it. Okay. And the only thing you should be daunted by is quality TV because it's extremely good. And now is it over? It's five seasons and that's done. Yeah. So it's just five, five seasons and it's done. And each season's got, it's, it's one of these HBO series that's got about I don't know, 10 or 12 episodes each season. So it's not a, it's not a mammoth ask in order to watch it, really. That, that, that actually does make it sound much more manageable. But, but it, the thing is, Adam, I have watched so many crappy, like I watched all of the Battlestar Galactica TV show. And that, good Lord, I could have been watching The Wire all the time. No. I'm watching Lost. I watch Lost every single freaking week and I can't stand that show. I should be watching The Wire instead. Uh, you, you're obviously you're punishing yourself as some. I don't know what it is. I have a deep. Yeah. I have a deep masochistic streak. Every time you get, every time you get the desire to watch Lost, go and watch another episode of The Wire. Well, yeah, I like I like your thinking, but fortunately, and I cannot tell you how grateful I am for this. Lost is almost over. There's only a few more episodes, and then I can be done with it forever. Uh, you, you don't watch. I've never. I've seen I've seen the first 20 minutes of the first episode, and I I then heard that it all went off to crazy land, and so I've decided yeah. not to watch any of the rest of it. That is absolutely the right decision, Adam. You've you've made a good choice. What do you so so is is Aaron watching the wire with you? Is that something you guys yeah. do? Yeah, it's 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 like a a ritual for us. We watch various. We don't watch TV. We we buy right. DVD box sets of, of TV shows, the good ones. And, of course, we use quarter to three to figure out which are the good ones, and then we go through and watch them. Right. right. So, yeah, we have a that's, a... that's our way of relaxing. Well, one of these days I'll, I'll be... How far into the wire are you, by the way? Oh, we're about two-thirds of the way through the final season. And don't you get, as you will, you will find, when you love a show like that, you, you're probably going to be very sad knowing yes. this is going to be it. There's going to be no more episodes. You're almost done with it. Uh, that, that kind of sucks too. Yeah. You can see you can see that there's sort of the certain threads that they're that they're, that are hanging there that they they could use for a future season if they ever do. But presumably that's never going to happen. So, yep. Oh dear, it's always sad. But then there's so much other stuff to watch. You've just got to put your head down and go for it. Well, you know the guy that did the wire. Uh, uh, I want to say David Kelly, but that's not right. Uh, whatever that dude's name is, uh, what is David his? Simon. 
David Simon, yes, yes. Isn't didn't he go on to do uh, Generation Kill for HBO? Uh, yeah, uh, apparently. I'm waiting for that to come out on DVD over here. And he's working on another one about New Orleans as well. Oh, what's that uh, one? Which, uh, I can't remember the name. It's got a funny name. Uh, I'm sure someone will point out in the forum what it is. Um, but it's all about... It's about the, the it's got a lot of New Orleans jazz in it, apparently. I don't know a lot about it, but it's obviously essential watching. Very cool. Uh, Cormac McCarthy, who wrote the, the Road and No Country for Old Men, apparently his next novel is uh, about New Orleans. Uh, so, very cool. Good. And we're getting a lot of attention. Uh, you know what? It, it helps to, to be almost wiped off the face of the earth by a by a hurricane. <laughs> I think that. Yeah. And we're very cool. sad that when we came over to the U.S. and brought that big crop with us, that we never managed to get to New Orleans. We were we were intending to go, but then Aaron got very ill in Fort Worth. We were stuck in Fort Worth for about six days. Oh, were you guys going to, you'd planned to see uh, New Orleans, had you? Yeah, we were going to go down to um, see a friend of ours at, uh, in, in Louisiana, and um, we were going to move across, we are going to go down to Rockefeller, and we are going to go up to New Orleans, but that never happened, so next time. Oh, that's too bad. I'll go with you guys, too. I, w- I would love to go back down to the, the Gulf Coast. I, I visited yeah, there a few times when I was younger. I, I, I love it down there. I'd like to have another drink with you, so definitely. Come on back out to the States or uh, next time I'm in uh, Darwin. <laughs> uh, so, uh, I'm waiting, waiting for someone from quarter to three to come to Darwin so that I can introduce them to, to Smog. Now, wait a minute. Aren't there – there's a bunch of quarter to three Australian folks, aren't there? Have you met any of those guys? No, no, I've never met any of them. Now, Darwin's kind of out of the way place. Not that many people come here. Um, it's it's one of these things where you can get flights to all the major cities around the east and the south coast for you know very pitifully small amounts of money. But if you want to come to Darwin, it costs a heck of a lot of money. So yeah, if you're really money. dedicated to go to Darwin, <laughs> you've got to be hardcore dedicated. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, for everyone listening, uh, so so post in the thread whether or not Paul Walker is Australian. I actually know the answer to this, but but for all you know, Paul Walker could be Australian. We, we don't know. Here in the States, it's like they're sleeper cells of Australian celebrities, and we never know when they're going to emerge. Uh, they're, they're, they're planning to take over at some point. And- Make it, it make it the new Australian state. I would be okay with that. Australia, I, I think, is is pretty cool. Uh, it, it could be a lot worse. You'd be okay, You'd be okay with the with the wallabies and things. Is a wallaby just a kangaroo? It's like a koala yes. bear. Yeah, I think I would like be okay a... with that. <laughs> Dingoes, wallabies, Peter Weir movies all the time. Yeah, I would be okay with that. <laughs> so uh, next week we will be okay. Here's here's the name. So this is a fun name to say out loud, Adam. I have no idea if I'm doing it right. Abilio Carvalho <laughs> will be here next week. Uh, I don't know. See, isn't that fun? It's like you're you, when you're saying it, you're like a you're like a, a hot, spicy Latin lover or something. <laughs> Either that, or it's the name of a really expensive brandy or a cigar. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you'll, I'm sure he'll be right on our pronunciation next time. I, but you know what? Until we know how it's pronounced, I I, I love uh, doing that. Uh, and he wants to talk about. Oh, what game did he pick? Uh, hold on one second. I have to check. Oh, Supreme Commander Two. So we'll be doing some oh. serious. Hardcore real-time strategy nerd wonk talk. Uh, Supreme no. Commander Two is that even out? You bet. If maybe not in uh, Australia, maybe not in Darwin. No, no. <laughs> yes, it just came out last week. I haven't week. played the first one. Uh, you know, there's far better art. Well, you know what? It's, it's a good, accessible RTS, unlike the first Supreme. No, no, don't 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 criticize someone's choice until you've heard their arguments. 
<laughs> Fair enough. But actually, uh, Abilio and I are both, I think, fans of Supreme Commander 2, though. So, so well, everyone I, listen. I will listen. I will listen with great anticipation. These these podcasts are the, the greatest thing since since I don't know. Better <laughs> podcasts. That's Who good. <laughs> well, well, thank you for I that. I can't run out, as you can probably tell. As has mine, yes. I. Uh, so I, I really, uh, it's so cool getting to talk to you. I, I wish you would come back to the states. I had a great time getting to meet you. Um, transport another crocodile. Doesn't doesn't Smog want to move to uh, some zoo in New Orleans? <laughs> oh, we would never get rid of Smog. He's 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 part of the family. So actually, real quick, when you what was the name of the crocodile that you guys took to Texas? I forgot his name. Gustav? Uh, no. Was, no, Errol. Errol. Good Lord, where did I get Gustav? Was it difficult they, they, to let go sorry. of Errol? Like, were you attached to Errol? Was that like having to give away a pet? Um, well, he didn't he, he didn't live here. He was at the crocodile farm, but we knew him fairly well, and he appeared in a few documentaries. So, in some ways, yes, it was hard to see him go. You, you don't think about these things until you've actually you dragged him out of his enclosure and you, you're putting the last screw into the crate that you're transporting and you look back and you see the empty enclosure and you think, oh, oh you know, oh, no. Now, have you had it at the same time? Well, at the same time, it was it was just awesome to see him in his new enclosure and he's now, you know, instead of being in a crocodile farm where no one sees him at all anymore, it appears in the old documentary, he's now on, you know, full display. All these people can see him. He, I think he loves the attention. So, yeah, that uh, is a good thing. That's good. Errol is kind of like Naomi Watts. He's come over to the United States and become a big star. <laughs> and, right. and, and probably a lot of people... Confusing him for American. And probably a lot of people don't even know he's Australian, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I so, think they've renamed, they've renamed him Salty. Are you serious? I'm serious. That's terrible. <laughs> Salty. They were going to call him Kraken. Which at least would have been something, and they could have tied it in with the new the new yeah, movie that was yeah. coming out, has come out or whatever. Who knows with these things? Kraken, ma- no, salty. Salty makes him sound like a, some dippy cartoon character. Oh, poor Errol. <laughs> oh, well, well, Adam, thank you uh, so much for hanging out with me today. Uh, we will be I always have fun talking with you, Tom. It's good. Cool. We will see you around on the forum and everyone listening. Uh, Join us next week as uh, Abilio Carvalho joins us. So, all right. Thanks, Adam, and we'll see you around the forum. Okay, see you around.